Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories from Village Global. I'm not Eric Tornberg, I'm Eric's co-founder and partner, Ann Dwayne. Today's episode features Rebecca Caden, managing partner at Union Square Ventures, and Garrett Smiley, co-founder at Sora Schools. Together, we'll dig in on the evolution of education, thesis-driven investing in the sector, navigating the idea maze to create a new venture, fundraising in 2D versus 3D amid a pandemic, and much more. Garrett and the team at Sora Schools created a live, virtual, project-based high school designed to accelerate students toward their wildest dreams. Students at Sora Schools, that's Sora, S-O-R-A schools.com, have agency and responsibility in shaping their educations for higher engagement and better outcomes. Rebecca, we're so delighted to have you with us today and uh, talking about Sora Schools. And you're a thesis-driven investor. So what was your thesis here? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to specifically talk about this topic and Sora. Um, USV is a, a thesis-driven firm. We've long been investing in the category really with the same thesis from the beginning, which is that unlike almost everything else in our lives, education looks basically the same today than it did 50 years ago. Now, Today, today, you know, six months into a pandemic, I think we're really starting to see that change. And that may be less true than it was six months ago. But but that idea has really guided our thinking that structurally the system looks almost identical, but student debt has increased, outcomes have decreased, unhappiness has, has increased, and yet the structure behind it hasn't really broken. And we've thought a lot about that and, and what might create change. And what we believe in is is companies that can go direct to learner and change the system from the outside in. So how can you show people directly that there are better ways to learn or different ways to learn? And so in our portfolio, that's included things like Duolingo, Skillshare, OutSchool, Quizlet. So really, you know, across K-12 and also lifelong learning. And when we met Garrett and Sora, we had this conversation with each other around, we've been getting at this idea that education has to change. Um, The best way to do this is to go direct to learner. But we've never went straight at the problem, which is tackle building the school. And everything we're doing feels like to us, it's building up to this idea that if you believe this, you got to go straight at it and make the bet that school itself can be different and it can be different in a networked way. And so when we met Garrett and he basically said, hey, I'm going to build the biggest school out there and I'm going to do it in a way that scales but is individualized to each student, it felt kind of like a culmination of the thesis that we had been really building towards, uh, which is why we were particularly excited to, to jump on board. Super. And now let's go to Garrett. And Garrett, can you give us a little reprise of what the pitch was? And maybe, you know, so we can we can see how that you sparked that interest in that thesis. Yeah. So Sora is a, a big, ambitious project to create the best high school in the world. And we're entirely online. We're not online, um, you know, in addition to that, we're online as a consequence of that. The best high school in the world will be online. So we're starting from first principles, building up really from research. We, we just deeply believe in research and learning science. So where does that take us? That's the journey we're on. And we're in year two. So we've had a little experimentation and I'd happily dive into the model and pedagogy. But yeah, that's, that's Sora, super high level. 
And but let's dig in a little bit to this. Tell us a little bit more detail on how you navigated the idea maze. So you had this epiphany, things needed to change, and then what's next? Yeah, so the idea maze for me was a slow burning process. <laughs> so I started the idea for Sora really in my high school years, where my mom's in the military, so I moved around a lot of different times. And kind of my my coping mechanism almost <laughs> was after I went to all these different schools, they all have the different thesis on education similar but different and it just became apparent to me how how non-optimized it was perhaps and so seeing all these different ways of approaching it what is the correct way that we should be educating people what's the correct way we should be learning and around the same time I got deeply interested in, in a couple of things outside of school like I got really interested in physics so I was reading lots of physics books and physics textbooks you know connecting with communities outside of school and then I started my first nonprofit with my sister where we ended up traveling the country, building water infrastructure and developing nations. And it just became so clear to me that the things I was doing outside of school were way more educational, way more formative. But my school first didn't even recognize them as academically valid experiences. I still had to go sit down and learn physics class. Like that was pretty silly. So how can we do, how can we leverage these, these learning science epiphanies that I had and bring it into the school space? And especially given the development of uh, the internet, <laughs> you know, I was an internet native the person. <laughs> yeah. The interwebs, exactly. <laughs> I'm a very young person, so being internet native in my learning was just super apparent to me. But then when you compare that to a, a traditional school, they're in the business of content creation, but the best content, way better content, is ubiquitous and exists, you know, on Google. So it just was a, it didn't match up for me. And that's really where the idea for Sora began. And that was a, a long journey really for the last five plus years I've been developing this idea. And what have you changed your mind about, or what have you learned that, that maybe you didn't expect when you started out about how this can work well? Oh, everything and everything. <laughs> so I came out with strong hypotheses on how education should look. I think I, I was correct about many of them, but <laughs> the sad thing about educational research is there's really no st- statistical significance. We never see, you know, this is the best way of doing things. There are too many compounding factors. So I came out with a strong hypothesis around autonomy, you know, following things like self-determination theory, recognizing that students need to have an internalized locus of control, meaning they need to feel like they're, they're change agents in their own life. That was a big hypothesis of SOAR, which has remained true to this point as well. Um, but just things like what level of autonomy? There becomes the paradox of choice where students get paralyzed and indecision kind of thing. Um, how can we scaffold, how can we structure to facilitate that process? It becomes something that's really important, something we've been focusing on as well as just how we build communities around topics where synchronous learning may not make the most sense. You know, scope and sequence doesn't really make sense when you can have an individualized curriculum. But how can you use that as a tool to improve learning? Not as just an organization tool for administrators, but how can you, you know, have some sort of sequence that can facilitate learning, not just be an administrative tool? And Rebecca, as an investor, you know, Garrett raised the interesting questions like, there's no real science to measure success. How do you think about what will be, how you'll evaluate the business? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of things, right? I think um, education is tricky in this way because we'd all, we have dual things we have to measure it on, right? We're venture investors and we are in the business of managing LPs' monies to create Uh, massive returns. And we believe very much that that's very, very possible in this category, including in K-12. We're also very interested in outcomes. And the idea that building um, a massive uh, network approach online school 
the kind of thing that Garrett is talking about will produce a great business and also superior outcomes for the students involved. And that I think a question that we all have to think about, and I don't know that we have the perfect answer yet, but I think the whole process of building Sora will be part of this is what is superior outcomes? Because I think we're questioning that throughout the system. You know, in our diligence, we spoke to some of the students and the parents at Sora. And what you hear is outcomes are subjective and a lot of it is about learning how to learn and appreciate learning and be able to explore passions. And some of the, you know, it'd be easy to say outcomes are how good are their college admissions, right? Or how good are when you map to standardized test scores. And not only is that not how Garrett and team think about it, it's not how their community is really thinking about it, which isn't to say, you know, I think one of the things we really like about Sora is that they've done a lot of work to ensure that you leave the options open, that kids and families that want to pursue college very much can do that, that you're not, you know, prematurely choosing your future path. But they're also saying to families and kind of the education ecosystem, we have to open our eyes to what outcomes are and think about it in a new way. So I think we have more questions than answers on how to measure that yet, but are trying to push kind of what those definitions would be. But I'm I'm curious on what Garrett would say there when, when you guys measure outcomes internally. Yeah, it really gets at a bigger question, which is if the role of a school in the 21st century, as I alluded to a second ago, isn't to create content, and I think we're all at that point in this conversation, if that's not the role, what is the role of a 21st century school? And I would say much more than creating content, perhaps curating content is important, but much more than that, it's creating a community. So copying things like for online native young people like me, we know things like discord communities are probably the most engaging communities in the whole world. Like these online communities, the relationships you can build, that's a huge part about a school creating a community of learners. As I said, self-termination theory earlier. So how can you build that, um, that relatedness? That's the word they would use. That's a huge role of a school. The accountability piece, we all struggle with. This is the problem of being uh, an independent learner where we set goals for ourselves and then those goals, eh, maybe next week instead. That's a very human thing to do. So how can we build out the accountability structures? That's a huge part about school. And thus far, schools have decided that threats are the best way to do it. Say, well, I'll fail you if you don't. We disagree with that. (laughs) We want to take a much more um, from the ground up first principles approach to motivation. And then in addition to that, inspiration. If you inspire someone or make them passionate about a subject and they're genuinely curious, (laughs) they're going to pursue it with all their might. And you just kind of have to get out of their way, (laughs) if that makes sense. So we really believe that's the three-pronged approach a school should be taking in the 21st century. And we can spend our labor talking about, to Rebecca's point, this is still, we have to think about this for scale. So if we have finite resources, we shouldn't be spending our, our money on the labor of giving human YouTube videos, aka lectures. We should be applying it to these things which are high impact, which I, which I just discussed. So yeah, that's how we think a little bit about that. Outcomes specifically, to Rebecca's point, we just we say we want to open more doors. We don't want to close any doors. We don't want to say you can't go to college. Students can go to college if they want. I went to college. It's, it's a fine thing to do, I guess. <laughs> but we want to partner with the people who are, who are changing that paradigm shift, the, the boot camps and the you know, gap year programs and um, even employment. We match students up with internships as well. We just want to open up significantly more doors but leave the traditional ones there as well. Excellent. So can you walk us through a day in the life of a Sora School student? 
Yeah, that's a tricky question because <laughs> much like the real world or much like even college, no day is really the same. We have our, our schedule is much more like a college schedule where we don't really have a concept of courses, though. We work in two-week cycles that we call expeditions. So these cycles are – these are two things I want to go really deep on over these two weeks with the support of an expert and with a small group of peers. Um, and these each of these expeditions meets a few times a week synchronously. And in addition to that, we have other fun things like we have stand-ups in the morning with your small house group. So we really focus on the community, as I just said, and as well as checkpoints in the afternoon and little competitions we do and in clubs and, and level-up sessions, which is what we call our peer-to-peer learning process. So if you're learning something and a student learned it two weeks ago, matching them up. So we do a bunch of stuff, but a lot of it is setting the accountability structures and then trusting them to finish it, of course, with consequences. So that's a political way to, to give the answer of it changes every day, but you could expect them to have about two to two and a half hours of active or collaborative learning a day. That's, you know, being in a small group, discussing either what your goals are for the day or um, having a Socratic discussion or you know, doing a case study or something like that. Um, and then the rest, you know, the, the remaining parts of the day are asynchronous work to prepare for these case studies, these, um, these high impact activities we do to make sure you have informed conversation so yeah we really try to get away from the whole sitting in lecture paradigm if you're showing up to something it's going to be high impact with other people reminds me of a funny quote about schools it says if you're measuring seat time you're measuring the wrong end of the student (laughs) Um, i'm just wondering so now you've talked about student experience and i'm thinking about like okay so who 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 are the inmates running the asylum (laughs) like is that what is the education slash facilitation model how does that look like and how is it structured from an educator or facilitator perspective? Yeah, so we believe in growing by cohorts. We want every school to feel like a small community or almost take that micro school feeling where you know everyone, everyone has vested success in you. It's, a, it's really a community, going back to that community word. <laughs> so what we do is we grow by a cohort, which is defined as the three experts or three faculty members who can support X amount of students. It seems to be around 60 students is the sweet spot. But these experts are the ones who are facilitating your expeditions, which is the small and high impact activities. Um, We have one in STEM and one in humanities. They're also the ones who give me feedback on your work. So roughly we have the two experts who are there and then a counselor. The counselor is just sort of recognizing that teenage years are hard. There's a lot of stuff going on in your teenage years. And it's the last step before you make a really big decision, namely your first job or or college. (laughs) So we really invest in the soft skills development the even professional development of the students with this counselor role. And what is your next step? Are you going to get a job? Should we get you an internship? We have students interning at labs right now at, at companies or, you know, college, whatever it may be. So that's roughly the structure of a SORA cohort, these two experts and then a faculty member. But how we manage that, so how we have this highly engaging experience with all this stuff that traditional schools don't do, because we really try to automate away all the 99% of low-impact activities teachers do in a traditional paradigm. Things like, you know, lecturing, which I've said, that's a huge spend of time. Things like grading, putting grades down unless you're giving actionable feedback is a silly way to spend time in our opinion. So that's how we can, you know, really expand that 1% of time that teachers have right now, make that their full time and really expand the impact to those 60 students. And you mentioned internships. Can you talk more about your vision for that? Yeah. So at SOAR, we believe in the principle of directness, which is another way of saying you should structure your learning in the most relatable context the, uh, as the eventual application of the learning. So if you're going to 
if you're trying to learn to be a web developer, you don't read a book about web development. You build a web app, right? <laughs> so there's, and then also we really want our students to have real world experience. What is that job like that, that you think you're going to love? You know, many of our students say, I want to be a game developer. We're like, okay, let's try that. Then not the end, like, I don't want to be a game developer. <laughs> so getting that out of the way, not in college. So we want that real world experience. What's it like to work in a workplace as well as the thing you think you want to? The principle of directness, applying them, their skills directly to the problem. Those things combined, there's a word for that. It's a job, project-based learning for real world things. You and I do it all the time. <laughs> so we try to match students up with internships. We have what we call our work-study program where we match up low-income students with um, internship opportunities to pay for their tuition, um, as well as just our vast mentor network. So we have a 50-plus growing every week um, list of mentors who are willing to spend multiple hours with the students every month to give them feedback or tell them here's what the job's actually like. (laughs) So we just really believe in applying and integrating that real-world work experience into the curriculum. And are there certain kinds of employers that would be right for this? We have a lot of different people on our mentor network. So we have everyone from, you know, I'm a doctor, or I'm a medical student, or maybe I just went to the school you were thinking about going to. So we just want to get a vast array of different people they can talk to. Although for the company side, things that can work well remote, right now we're just trying to focus on digital marketing, build up those, those entrepreneurial skills. That's where we're starting right now for the internship placement. But we have a lot of other uh, exceptions to that. Like we have a student working at, in the Georgia Tech lab right now. Um, do, she's really interested in chaos theory research, which is interesting. <laughs> new new interest since joining Sora, by the way, which we're excited about. <laughs> we have a lot of other exciting things, but we're really trying to focus as far as the internship placement on skills that are relevant to their future, but then hopefully they're able to make some money from. Super. And um, let's shift gears a little bit and hear about your experience fundraising during the pandemic, because have you and Rebecca met in person? No, they both shaking no. their head. No. Okay. So let's, for, let's hear from both sides. So Garrett first, what was it like for you? It was awesome. So <laughs> I flew from, from New York to San Francisco back to back so many times during the week where I was actually just in my parents' basement. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was zooming from literally zooming from New York all the way to San Francisco and back again, multiple times a day where I was able, and this is, as most entrepreneurs entrepreneurs will know, not possible in any other climate, but I had like 60 meetings across the country in a week. Like that's just not possible unless it's <laughs> Zoom native. <laughs> so it gave us a real advantage. And, you know, you can roll up one minute before, wake up and show up. <laughs> Did you have a special Zoom shirt or something to uh, either lock it or impress, you know, your investors? Well, the shirt was always meticulously taken care of. It was the, the shorts or black throat. Just kidding. <laughs> um, and Rebecca, what was this whole process like for you in a Zoom environment? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel it at Village Global, but our experience in this was, you know, pandemic hit and we spent probably the first month thinking, you know, largely what's going on in the portfolio? How do we help them? Everyone's you know, somewhat up in the air, how do we focus there? And then having a lot of internal discussions of what is our process now? Can we invest remotely? We're used to meeting people. I care very deeply about relationships with the founders that I work with. And I think so much about that as time that I've spent in person, you know, how does it evolve? And we had so many theoretical conversations about it. And then the completely predictable thing happened, which is then you meet companies you're excited about. And, and all of your theoretical conversations about how you'll do this go out the window because 
you meet a company that falls up our alley of our thesis and we're super excited about. The first one was actually um, a company my partner John met in the fintech space and that was the first one that tested us and, and we had had all these ideas and then we just wanted to be part of this and you figure out how to how to do it and how to gain comfort level and um, I've been really surprised and also you know excited that how quickly we can adjust and I you know in some ways it's totally relevant for Sora right because it wasn't what we were native to the venture practice I had learned to do was, you know, you build relationships and you do it in person and you fly out and you spend the time and that's how you show commitment and all of these kind of things. That's not the venture process Garrett's had at all. So it's not weird to him. And in some ways, when you think about Sora, that type of learning seems strange or an adjustment to us because it's not what we're accustomed to doing. It's not how I think about school. But for a lot of the students going to Sora, it will totally be how they think about school and over time it won't be strange. And so I think there's this trend line with all of these new things of resetting a norm. And that's definitely what, what we've seen on the investment side. Excellent. Yeah. There's a lot less coffee involved, I think in yeah, these exactly. venture processes. Yeah. It's really amazing. That's um, right. uh, Rebecca Garrett is a first time founder and is a uh, great team, but they're all first time entrepreneurs. Is there any ways you think about, coaching them and working with them, maybe different than a serial founder? You know, I think our attitude is you respond to what the founders are looking for and what they need. And I think sometimes there are differences in first-time founders and others. And some of that's just around the process of company building, right? There's building a massive education building. There's business. There's building a school. There's the kind of meat of what you're actually building. And then there are some things around what it takes to build a very high-scale, high-velocity business, and some of that, I, I think that can be where the patterns of a portfolio can be helpful. And so we, we try to do that for all portfolio founders, but I find that sometimes first-time founders, you know, take that into account or uh, find value in that in different ways. So we have a network team that works on that and the partners work on that. But, you know, I think Garrett has super deep subject expertise here and he's been living in the, in the business. And so, you know, we have a lot of admiration for that. And then we can help on things like, how do you build the right team? You know, how do you think about when to build the right kind of team and what that, what right looks like when you're hiring, making those hires and, and those kind of things. So we're excited to do that here. And, and Garrett, you did a wonderful job of having the opportunity to work with multiple investors. How did you end up, uh, and you made a great choice, how did you end up making your decision of who was in the round as an investor? Yeah. Yeah, that was Definitely tough. And because of the climate of the pandemic raising, you can have a lot more meetings. So you have a lot more offers, but it's also harder to Rebecca's point. It's harder to build that relationship. And just in the early days, you can't share dinner together. You can't do these things. So parsing out who's serious and who is just writing a trend because education, we can't deny is, is, is attractive is right now to investors. So it was really a question on our end of, who is in this for the long haul? Who has a thesis? Who wants to contribute for the right reasons? And when the folks at USP, as well as Village Global, came, they said, here's how we're thinking about it. We have a track record. I have personal experience, Rebecca and team, as she said, the culmination of our thesis. And we're okay if it, you want to grow slowly. Like the Minerva people said, we're building the next Harvard. You don't want to mess that up. We kind of view it the same way. We're building the best high school in the world, scalable from the beginning. We don't want to mess that up. We're being very intentional. So 
we wanted people got on the same page, you know, don't push us like a software company. We're, we're building this really intentionally from the beginning. And when we had that lined up, we felt really good about our choices, including you two. You two have been tremendously helpful. Oh, well, it's a, it's a treat. And now um, I have two great education experts on the line, and a lot of folks listening to this podcast are thinking about their own business in this sector. So um, are there any particular ideas or needs out there, problems that should be solved by some other entrepreneur? Um, <laughs> yes, right? I think, I think lots and lots, right? Like, just like, you know, this market is absolutely gigantic. There is no... Um, limit really to the number of businesses that can be built on how we learn across our lives. Sora is tackling a certain segment of it, but, you know, higher education is one um, that also has a lot of room around the kind of personalized outcome-driven journeys that we're talking about. This, uh, this trend of following individual interests and letting that guide learning journeys, I think, um, is really applicable across stages and will be tackled. Um, I also think lifelong learning has a lot left to do in it. We've seen that from companies like Duolingo and Skillshare, but I think people are thinking about learning way less as segmented parts of our lives and more as a continuous spectrum. People are changing jobs more frequently. We have access to content in different kinds of ways. Uh, we're looking at what careers mean and our empowerment behind them in different ways. And so learning becomes part of all of that versus its own segmented degree-driven thing. And I think there's lots of really interesting businesses to be built there as that evolves. And so we're, we're looking across the spectrum and very eager to do more in it. Super. Garrett, was there any, is there any other problem that's adjacent to yours that you're like, boy, I wish some entrepreneur would go and solve that? Y'all just read my product roadmap and all the things that need to be built. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to do it unless someone beats us to it. <laughs> but everything from the shift to portfolios, where these things like the badging system, which is becoming popular, and just portfolio management, there are tools, but none that are great. And there's the obvious opportunity where you can expand that to replace um, the signaling or credentialing measures we use now for students, like Common App and whatever it may be. There are awesome opportunities there. Someone should really go after that. Yeah, and just project management overall is an LMS thing. Soros had to build our own custom LMS to support this non-traditional paradigm. And I think, well, I know a lot of people are going the Sora way, whether we had some something to do with that or not. A lot of people are finding these sprint cycles for courses to be exciting. And people are finding um, you know, tagging skills, which is a long project based. It's been around for a long time in the project-based community, tagging skills to journeys. But there's a need for organization like the learning management systems or our student information systems that just don't exist. And I really encourage entrepreneurs to show up to Sora, see, see what could be improved. We are not able to build it all. The scope is too <laughs> large. Just get in the space if you're a smart person and want to see change. Anything you want to get out there that we didn't put on the table? I'm curious what you were most excited for in Sora. You have <laughs> by far the most education background of any of us, and you've just let us speak about it. So curious what you know, what got your eye? Yeah, no, I think it's the, it's this idea of learning to learn and let a thousand flowers bloom. I mean, again, it's this, that great, um, what is his name? Sir Ken Robinson's Ted talk, which is like 10 years ago. It's like we, you know, it's the agrarian economy and the industrial production that have formed our education system. And it just makes no sense now. So how do you have basically mass customization to let people unleash 
and it, the timing seems perfect, as you said, Rebecca, like to c- go in from the outside in, it was harder than now because now it was like all bets are off. Like, okay, I'm going to try something new, you know, as a, as a kid or as a parent. So I think it's super exciting. Just to add to that, I think the timing is really great, but perhaps for, for different reasons than people think. <laughs> These tools, this remote work or the work from home infrastructure has really existed for, you know, call it four or five years now. Everything from Zoom replacing Skype and now we're able to have conversations like this. <laughs> the infrastructure has been maturing. And for people like me, it was really clear that we could have a world-class school online. But now with the pandemic, Big, big companies. I was just reading the Brex announcement earlier today. They're like, if you design the medium optimally, it blows offices out of the water. And similarly, if you design the medium of a school optimally, it we have superpowers like that traditional schools can't even imagine. So, yeah, I think the timing's been really great, and I'm glad that even the workplace is recognizing that. I, I think that's actually a really interesting point, right? Because one thing we don't talk enough about is the underlying ability to offer learning in an accessible and cost-effective way like this. And that's driven a bunch of our investments, including OutSchool and, and Skillshare and others, that you know the type of communication that SOAR relies on and the quality of the experience it can offer only exists because technology has massively improved and the cost has massively declined, even in the last 36 months. And so it's leveraging really near term, you know, innovations to to make it so that when the behavior change is happening, you can take advantage of it, which I think is really cool. Garrett, is there an ideal student persona or a bunch of ideal student personas for Sora schools? Yeah, so Sora focuses at this time in our history on students who perhaps feel like they're being held back by the school system. They feel like they have so many you know, vision of themselves or so many ideas, but then they're told to hurry up and wait, sit in rows. I know I sure felt that way. <laughs> so students who feel like they have some bigger vision of themselves always work really well at Sora. We don't care if you get you nailed the SAT. We don't we just want you to be excited about joining like-minded people and contributing to a community and really pushing yourself. Those are the types of students that work well at Sora. And just to clarify, are you accepting applications right now? Of course. Yeah. (laughs) We're accepting them both for January and the fall, and even in some cases sooner than that. Okay, great. Uh, You might like some employers who would want to mentor or hire interns, and um, also you're hiring for your team. Where should people find you? Yeah, you can find us at soraschools.com, and just keep your ear out if you hear about us. Tell tell other people we're cool. (laughs) (laughs) And Rebecca, what's the best way for folks to um, track your writings and, and, and latest thinking. Yeah. Out. Twitter is always a good one at Rebecca Caden. And also we publish all of our thoughts on our thesis and investments on the USV blog. We care a lot about being as transparent about them as possible. So that's a good one as well. Thank you both so much. It's so fun. What a fun Thank conversation. You, so fun. All right, guys. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.